from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Dr. Robert Keegan is nothing short of the academic ambassador of human development. Here, Dr. Keegan explores the vital role of interior development in creating a more inclusive and integrated world, as well as the importance of the appropriate use of discriminating awareness. Hello, Bob King. Ken, how you doing? <laughs> well, more importantly, how are the Red Sox? Well, they're still alive and kicking, and they've already made history. No team in history has ever even forced a seventh game after being down 3-0. Uh, well, that alone does your heart good. The whole town is totally exhausted <laughs> and crazed in a slightly pleasant and maniac kind of way. You know? <laughs> Well, goodness gracious, it's been a year or two since I've seen you. You're it doing, has, it has. You're doing fine. You've got I'm your, doing very well. Thank with you. your endowed chair. I do have an endowed chair. That yep. is so cool. You have to treat me with you know renewed respect and awe and reverence. I do indeed, your acreship. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that great? I mean, seriously, developmental studies fell on a little bit of a hard time, I think, because of sort of an extreme concern that somehow is pigeonholing people or ranking people or something like that. And now I sense there's a real coming back and appreciation of really what it does, which is an effective way of communication. It's skillful means for helping people. It's a way of understanding and orienting and so on. And so to actually have a chair that is devoted to adult development and learning and education, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a blow against boomeritis. <laughs> and, <laughs> So the Red Sox and Boomeritis are two things that right. we uh, definitely want to track here. Now, technically, what are you professor of now? What are they called, the endowed? I'm the Meehan Professor of Adult Learning and Professional Development. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah, and that, and that, you know, to be absolutely honest about it, although I get to be the first holder <laughs> and occupant of the chair until I become, uh, you know, senile or disgrace the university or something, that title covers such a multitude of uh, sins and approaches that any renewed <laughs> epidemic of boomeritis could easily fill the chair <laughs> with somebody who doesn't take on kind of the hard work of approaching issues of, you know, normativeness and betterness and so on. I would love to talk about that because in a wonderful way, we've kind of inhabited, as you know, parallel universes. We yeah. did our first really well-known developmental book almost within one or two years of each other and every time one of us has ever appeared someplace somebody always comes up and says do you know the work of yep, you yep, mentioned the other absolutely one absolutely true even more warming to me is that people don't come up anymore and say well do you know ken wilbur's stuff but it's like i guess you and ken wilbur know each yeah. other and, uh, <laughs> or ken told me to come and see you yeah <laughs> well, exactly we send so many people your way and i know it's vice versa but it's always been gratifying in a sense when you stumble on the same territory from parallel independent ways because you have a sense that you didn't just make this up you know i in the way deep dim recesses of my mind think that any intelligent person ought to be able to see what we're doing. <laughs> and it's <laughs> uh, delusion number 304 I'm working on. But part of the real concern really is if you look at developmental studies, and they do involve things that are sometimes called hierarchies, that people have such a misunderstanding of that. Right. And a typical hierarchy 
means that each stage is more inclusive, more loving, more open, and so on. And not that it somehow represses or oppresses. I mean, pathologies are always possible, but that's not the definition of growth hierarchies. And so, you know, you've tiptoed in the best sense, in a positive sense, diplomatic sense, through academic atmosphere that for several decades has not been kind. Right. And so let's do talk a little bit about now, because I think the normativeness, the fact that there are waves, stages, levels of unfolding, and that they really point to a greater potential that all of us possess, these are really good news things that yeah. we can start to talk about a little bit more now. If people had to choose, you know, a single chart, a single graphic that would be worth their contemplating for a year and then holding on too closely, my candidate would be that picture of your four quadrants with the concentric circles indicating the different levels of complexity overlaid on those four boxes. Right. There's just such a world of integrated curricula that grow out of that picture. And if you remove the concentric circles... You have a powerful idea in the four boxes, but you've lost a lot of the dimension of what you're talking about there. Yeah, exactly. And my favorite example, it's very simple, but it's the scale in one of those boxes in the upper right is atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. Mm -hmm. And those are concentric circles. In other words, the molecules transcend and include atoms. They don't repress them. They don't hate them. And cells include molecules. They actually unfold them. They embrace them. And that's the model of what we're talking about in terms of these stages of development. They actually love their predecessors. They don't repress them, hate them, and so on. You know, that kind of integral view is exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. You know, cells to molecules and so on. Anyone can agree those are not just accretive increases but represent more complex reorganizations, the less complex elements of which you can see if you choose to look at it within any one of these complex forms. And no one runs around feeling that their hackles are up because you said a molecule was more complex than an atom or a particle was less complex than an atom or something like that. I know that maybe when you were writing Boomeritis, but long before it came out, at one of the meetings in your house, when you started talking about what the experience is, what the weather emotionally is like when you get back this kind of, oh, you must be some kind of a Nazi, or you never heard of postmodernism or something, because you have a notion of these hierarchies, I realized that you were a kindred spirit in a whole other way than I'd imagined just from reading your books. You know, that here's kind of a fellow sufferer in a way who has had to deal with that set of reactions. Right. uh, Go ahead. No, no, I definitely want to pursue that. I just wanted to add an irony to it because most of the things that people object to when they think about hierarchies are exterior social hierarchies, like a caste system, Mm -hmm. where a few select people, for whatever reasons, seem to have a great deal of power and they seem to be oppressing or holding down or actually literally enslaving other people. That's what they tend to think of when they think of hierarchy. Now, interiorly, that's not what a hierarchy is. That's not how it works. It's almost the opposite. But the irony is that if we take any of the developmental stages or hierarchies, yours classically five major orders of consciousness, each of them more enveloping and embracing and loving in that sense, the exterior dominator social hierarchies are put into place almost exclusively by people at the lower levels of an interior hierarchy. And that by definition, people at the higher stages of an interior hierarchy would never do something like that. So the only cure for the exterior hierarchies that they got so mad at us for is increasing the interior hierarchies you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm. 
Right. That's the irony. Yeah, I, I think that's beautifully put. It kind of reminds me that often this critique will come most passionately from students who identify with a particular oppressed group. Yeah. And what I'm always wanting to say is kind of the notion of an order of consciousness that can step back from the given arrangements of society, which given arrangements are always in some way broken and unequal and are disadvantaging people, including the people that you may care the most about or with whom you identify. The notion of an order of consciousness that can step back from that and not just take it as somehow a law of nature that a certain group should be oppressed is the greatest ally that you would have on behalf of your group. Absolutely. Just what I was saying from another angle. Exactly, exactly. A few things that have always struck me about this. One is that for many years at Harvard, I taught a lifespan developmental course that actually became my first big development book, The Evolving Self. It was as much an attention to childhood and adolescence as it was adulthood, and even more so in in many ways. I probably felt I wasn't adult enough myself really to be teaching a course on adult (laughs) development alone back then in my early days. But in any case, one of the things I noticed, spending a lot of time with people around these same rhythms and dynamics with respect to childhood, is that the tension level and the sense of personal assault and insult and so on, which we're talking about, never came up when the very same issues were being discussed with respect to child development. When you show people uh, Piagetian exercises and show them on film, you know, little kids who are shown two identical beakers filled with the same amount of liquid and then it gets poured into a taller and skinnier one and they say that there's more now in the taller and skinnier one and when you pour it back they say well now they're the same size and the fluidity of the pre-operational child which delights people and when they see the development of these concrete capacities to hold on to these categories nobody feels like something insulting or demeaning is going on, and no one feels any reluctance to say that there is some greater adequacy to the little boy who has come to the realization that he's never going to be older than his older brother or isn't going to change his gender or any of these, quote, illogical things that come out of the minds and mouths of three- and four-year-old kids. Everyone is willing to except what is basically the very, very same drama in its earlier acts. But it's when it becomes, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about me and my kind or something like that, that it becomes a whole different issue. Yeah. Well, and again, ironies abound because on the one hand, the concern for exactly that of oppressed groups and people that are treated unfairly, people that are disadvantaged, that concern itself comes into being only at a fairly high level of development. And so people that are raising these concerns, we tend to look at them and say, yes, that's right. You don't realize how rare your concern is. And it's coming from a very high level of development, and that's not a bad thing to say. Mm-hmm. That's to say, let more of that abound. Yeah, yeah that, that's either the beauty or some people find it the sneakiness of this whole perspective that you can turn any objective into itself, a piece of data that reflects back on the order of complexity you're using in speaking, you know. But, I mean, it isn't that different from that wonderful Einstein quote that was something like, we will never be able to solve today's problems with the same order of complexity we use to create them. Right. You know, we're going to have to somehow step out of this or it's just going to be some kind of a lateral move. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly the case that if you're talking about levels of complexity and everything 
in a sense, can be pegged at a level of complexity, then that can always be turned back against you. But that doesn't mean it isn't so. No, yeah. I, I absolutely <laughs> agree. I, I completely agree. One of the things that, in the same way of transferring, so to speak, the focus here, that I've developed that has worked fairly well in my own courses where I'm introducing people into all of this, is to try to create opportunities by which people have an opportunity to rather quickly come to the recognition and experience that they themselves are judges, evaluators, and hierarchizers. Exactly. That it's not exactly. some nasty theory that's been brought into our civilized myths and is sort of stinking up the environment, but that every <laughs> single one of us is just inevitably making judgments about right. more and less adequacy. Right. And right. one of the ways I've done this is a, for years I've shown people a therapy tape, which you may have seen has been used in millions of contexts, of Carl Rogers working with this generous woman, Gloria, who agreed to go and talk to three different therapists and talk about her real issues and give them an opportunity to sort of demonstrate the right. different ways they do therapy. Right. And that's the usual way that the film is used. But I've used it because she is somebody who is very much in what I call the socializing mind and who is just kind of trying to step out of that and and who is looking very much to Rogers, for example, as the wise therapist to sort of settle all these things and answer all these questions. And he, through his own client-centered responses, continuously trying to take a stand that she can look to herself for answers to these questions and that this whole notion of granting to others the right to decide whether she's a worthy human being and so on is at the crux of her developmental right. issue, which right. I would agree right. is absolutely dead on. And so he is trying to resist taking up his assigned role by her as a, a provider of directions and signals, and they can see her. She finally says to him, you know, you're being very nice and everything, but you're not answering my question, and I want to know, you know, should I do this and should I do that and around these very intimate and complex personal issues, and he keeps coming around to joining her empathically kind of like yeah. behind her back and looking yeah. out into the world as she's looking at it and refusing to take up his position as the answer-providing expert and so on. Right. And before I do any presentation of developmental theory, I show them this and ask them, what are they noticing and what stands out for them? And how would they describe ways that she's putting the world together? And they're, you know, they're very bright and they name all these ways in which she is trying to get the world to tell her, especially respected authorities and so on, how she should operate. And then I asked them, if she were to make progress or if you were the therapist and you were to come to feel like, you know, we're getting somewhere because there's some way in which she's different in a way that I really would think of as getting better in some sort of a way. Right. You know, is that a question, you know, you can entertain? Are, are there ways you would, the hopes you would have for her anyway? And people seem to have no trouble with that. They don't jump right up and say, what do you mean better and what do you mean progress? I mean, they can see right away what she's struggling with. And they start naming basically the features of, right. I guess, green or self-authoring right. or, or whatever it would be. Right. And I put it up on the board. And now you've you've named two different ways of operating. Now, what would you say about these two different ways? I mean, are they just different strokes for different folks or is there some sense in which you think one of these is actually better yeah. and at the very least you can always get the conversation and the battle if there's going to be one about notions like betterness 
externalized from a battle between me yeah. and the students yeah. to a battle between some of the students and others of the students. Right. And there will always be people who say, wait a minute, this is better. She'd be happier. She'd be more effective. She'd right. be a better mother. <laughs> she'd be projecting less of her own stuff onto her own kid. Yeah. You know, they start to become a champion of all the people that they can see are at certain risks because here she is in these leadership responsibilities operating this way. And so before we've even gotten too far into the class, we can step back and see kind of, okay, who's making judgments? Who's talking about betterness? Who has hierarchies? Right, know? right. This developmental theory or this evil professor, you know, or yeah. you. <laughs> and that's, at least we've opened the field. And I can feel like I can get in there each week without feeling that I'm going to have to be defending myself sort of because the battle has been externalized right. in the class rather than they're all on one side, and I'm saying, hey, you can talk about hierarchies without being a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so much of the battle is indeed semantic, and that's what's so uh, another sort of striking irony or at least peculiarity about this, because hierarchy, again, has got a reputation of being this fascist, yeah. caste, oppressive system, of which there are those kinds of systems in place out there, and they're not pleasant things. But the whole idea that, therefore, you're going to be free of judgment, because hierarchies are these judgmental things, and you're going to not have any judgment, that's where people get caught up, because it really is a self-contradiction, because they're really not free of judging. They're really not free of valuing. It's like in the 60s, we said, you know, all values are relative, but middle class values are really screwed up. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we know where to draw the firm line when we have but You know what this reminds me of? I've been wondering, actually, what you'd say to this, is whether or not these forms of relativism and of passionate objection and concern yeah. so on to these questions of normativeness and betterness and so on, aren't better considered in a more differentiated way and is coming from a number of different developmental perspectives that the idea of the mean green meme doesn't quite capture because it tends to suggest a rather monolithic character to the relativism. I mean, just for example, what I've noticed is that there's one kind of relativism that is really about the transition from the third order to the fourth order. Yes. A person who is just coming to discover that they have been taking as truth and as reality a set of values that they have imbibed and internalized from the valued surround of their family or tribe or whatever. Right. And that's a very, very important truth that they've come to, that this is just a constructed truth that a lot of people might be buying into, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the only truth and that they are beginning, just beginning to kind of see the self as an operation that can somehow make choices about these different values and begin to put together any kind of ideology of one's own. There's a passionate form of relativism and objection to hierarchies that comes up very often at that time in development. And they haven't even gotten to the green yet. That's in contrast to the four or five kind of thing, the sort of deconstructive postmodernism that is a stepping away from even my own ideology or self-authorship and recognizing its limitation. And, you know, how in the first move, it's a move away from the self defined by its loyalties and connections to the surround, whereas the second one is a move away from 
defining myself only according to a specific ideology with which I've become identified. Yep. You know what I mean? I do. I think there are at least two, maybe even three, I could even add a third if we got into mm-hmm. the transpersonal domains, where relativism comes up and there's certain truth to it and not just something that is mistaken or self-contradictory or a performative contradiction and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And the Mean Green meme was met just as a kind of caricatured poke at some of the boomeritis folks, of course, and I don't mean to yeah. you know, cover all the bases with that. It's just I wanted some bumper sticker I could hurl back at them while they yes, were calling yes. me <laughs> dirty names. So, uh, the first so one, are you. <laughs> the first one you're talking about, in a sense, three and a half, moving from sort of an embedded, Exactly, yeah. yeah yeah, I think it's true. I think one of the way to put it in sort of more generalized terms is when people are coming out of a conformist embedded stage of development, of which most developmentalists recognize several of those, but there is a stage that people go through and they just are so embedded in their culture they can't see it and they just accept it as my country right or wrong and so on. And then usually when they start moving towards a stage that's post-conventional or it's more universal or it is more self-authoring. And at that point, just the idea that what my country says isn't always right Mm-hmm. is almost shocking and mm-hmm. liberating right. and all of a sudden it does appear very relativistic at that point because if what my mom and dad told me and what my country told me and what the Bible told me isn't necessarily true, then anything goes. Right. So that's fairly high. It's not regression to level one or level two or not necessarily regression to egocentric or any of that kind of stuff. Right. And right. I think you're exactly right. That is indeed one kind of relativism that comes up. And then another more sophisticated is several developmentalists have the one we're talking about, Green Meme or Claire Graves, actually called it the relativistic stage. Mm-hmm. And in Jane Lovinger, it's the individualistic stage. Right. And it's a very, very differentiated structure, and it's right. differentiated the universal systems of formal operational thinking into multiple systems. Right. And that's a step up. Yeah, but absolutely. It, it doesn't absolutely. see how to hook those systems together, so it gets lost in a pluralistic world of nothing but relativism. And right. as soon as you try to find some higher unity, they accuse you of going going for, you know, universal, abstract, oppressive schema. That, right. you know, kind and of that's thing. a violation of yeah. the sort of it's, ideology of postmodernism. Exactly. Kind exactly. of itself a contradiction in terms. <laughs> well, certainly almost any of these levels, if they try to be absolute in themselves, they end up contradicting themselves because they don't cover the other levels. Right. But that right. certainly postmodernism got hoisted on its own petard louder and more sharply than anybody else because it came down so horror in the fact that there are no universals except theirs and there is no meta context except theirs and there is no big picture except they gave a very big picture why everybody else's big pictures don't work and so everybody from Habermas to Carl Otto Appel jumped all over him with what they called a performative contradiction you people are assuming what you're saying can't happen Right. Shame on you, you mean green (laughs) (laughs) well you know from a psychodynamic perspective it's almost like there's no frame on the world for which we have less sympathy and generosity than the one which we have only newly and perhaps perilously begun to extricate ourselves from. Oh, it's so, a reform smoker. Yes, yes. right. right. <laughs> so, so if I've begun to move away from this identification with the received tradition and my sense of my right. own coherence through right. my similar internalization of my family or my tribe or something like that, and I realize well, these are just positions that people are staking out. Then when someone comes along with any kind of a theory or a framework, to me it smacks right away. It sounds a lot like this world which I've only yeah. newly, finally escaped from. Yeah. 
And it's the same thing at the four and a half kind of thing, that yep. if you start introducing any kind of a framework, then this seems like, oh, well, wait a minute, that is just an invitation back to the old illusion, which I have finally exactly. come to recognize is an exactly. illusion, that there is some kind of wholeness within any given ideology. Mm -hmm. And I know they're all partial and they're all going to advantage someone and they're all going to leave someone out. But what happens when you present a kind of framework that is all about that very activity and yeah. the detecting of those sorts of limitations? But yeah. it's sort of hard to see that when it's like, wait a minute, you're just trying to offer me another ideology. and <laughs> I want to live in a world that relativizes ideologies. And then there isn't any category for something like an interdependent right. framework that the fifth order is about. Right. And that fifth order, that interdependent, integral, integrative connecting, mm -hmm. is a very high level of connection that doesn't override the relative independence of the other systems. That's also something I think the postmodernists had a hard time understanding. And so what they ended up doing, and rather sometimes in a cheating little bit of way, which is why they were nailed with a performative contradiction, is that they really split the world into two different kinds of narrative spheres. One is all of the culturally bound knowledge, of which there are no exceptions. All knowledge everywhere is culturally bound. There are no context-transcending claims. Right. All knowledge is social construction, and all knowledge is hooked to interpretations that cannot be reduced to empirical facts. Right. Now, they maintain that all of those are true for all cultures, at all times, for all humans. Yeah, it's a universality about the non-universalizable exactly. nature of, of exactly. human existence. So they created a meta-narrative of their own that they loaded with all of their absolute and universals that were not open to interpretation, not open to disagreement. They simply were true for all people at all times, or you are an oppressive swan for not seeing this. And then all the local knowledges are relative and pluralistic and so on. And they didn't allow that there was a type of argumentative access to their meta-narrative absolutist claims. And that's where I think they got you know, undone. But yeah. it doesn't mean that we disagree the fact that a great deal of knowledge is local and contextual and culture-bound and so on. As a matter of fact, it's one of my four quadrants. Mm -hmm. It's inescapable. Yeah, But boy, they got caught right at that four and a half stage and never quite made it into the integral leap. But on the other hand, I think it really is kind of a stage. I think it was an appropriate stage. But Jacques Derrida died last week. <laughs> and God bless him, and he was amazing. And I think, well, Foucault is my favorite of the postmodernists because I think Foucault approached genius status. And Foucault had the advantage, as we know, starting as a structuralist. So he could say a few things and not just deconstruct things. Right. But I think really postmodernism, the extreme versions, have kind of run their edge a little bit. I want to come back to that. And I thought I would toss in the third relativism I was talking about. Yeah, yeah you go ahead. Even, you went from the transpersonal. It's the same kind of thing, which is at some point people have these spiritual experiences of oneness with everything. Yes, everything that, is everything. everything is relative at that point in that sense, because then everything is transparent, shimmering. It's just a fleeting shadow, almost illusory. Not in a put-down sense, but just that there's this grand oneness that you can awaken to, and then everything is relative within that grand oneness. But it's not a oneness that, as Plotinus would say, it's not one plus one equals two kind of one. It's right. just an underlying ground or emptiness in which everything arises. And then there's another kind of relativity that can be experienced then. Part of the problem with the Boomeritis thing is that a lot of Zen and a lot of Taoism and so on, which is sort of absolute relativism, if you will, got interpreted as supporting postmodernism, and that just isn't 
true at all, because this is a realization and an awakening where you feel one with everything and not a way that you think in your head about relative cultural context and so on. But who it was that talked about this distinction between a more negative, deconstructive kind of postmodernism and a more positive, reconstructive postmodernism. Yeah, well, I think it's in the air. I've sort of counted myself as a positive or constructive postmodernism in the sense that we accept the relativity of a great deal of knowledge and the culturally bound or interpretive aspects of a great deal of knowledge, but not all of it, not even that assertion itself. Well, I've counted myself as a positive or constructive postmodernism in the sense that we accept the relativity of a great deal of knowledge and the culturally bound or interpretive aspects of a great deal of knowledge, but not all of it, not even that assertion itself. Right. (laughs) So what's your take on postmodernism? There was a two-decade period in the humanities where it was rather the 800-pound gorilla, wasn't it? Well, yeah, but here again, this gets into the difference between the empiricist pedestrian social scientist mode, which I think of as in many ways more my own walk, you know, and the philosopher's more sublime mode here, which I think of as yours. You know, in other words, (laughs) it's true that at the level of the discourse of very complex thinkers and so on, there's been this robust postmodern imagination. And it's kind of analogous to Vaclav Havel saying, we've come to the end of nations, and then look what we've got when we break up these totalitarian states and look at the former Yugoslavia. I mean, we certainly haven't come to the end of nations. So you have almost this elite group, which is working somewhere beyond the fourth order, maybe even in the fifth order, and working through this transition that first has this strong pushing away negative cast to it and hopefully wins its way through to this more reconstructive postmodernism. Yeah, yeah. But in the down from the mountaintops in the real world of what is the consciousness center of gravity at an empirical level or when you're working with a group of even very privileged and very bright graduate students as I am, you know, at a Harvard University professional school, the center of gravity is much more working through the movement towards self-authoring, not the pushing away from it. Got it. There is a certain kind of embattlement, you might say, that's been a part of the world of postmodernism at the intellectual discourse level and and critiques of theories and theorists battling away. But then there's another whole dimension that has to do with where people actually are more often developmentally. Well, I do agree with that, but I bet you'll agree with this part as well, though, that there is a parallel reflection that actually went on in a lot of people's ordinary lives, a very mundane level, that really did kind of reflect just some of the deep concerns that postmodernists were dealing with. And it's just what we started talking about. There was a whole change when postmodernism itself, I think reflective of this pluralistic level of development or the green meme or shifting between these two orders of consciousness that we were just discussing, I think it was a very real shift in awareness up from orange to green or up from what Claire Graves called multiplistic to relativistic. Mm-hmm. And about 20% of the population seems to have moved into those stages. There were many positives about that, including a lot of the important things of the 60s and the 70s about feminism and equal pay for equal work and health care reform and environmental reform and civil yeah. rights movement, I think, yeah. are all part of that in a very healthy way. Yeah. The downside of all of that is just that, is that we can make no judgments at all. Judgments are bad. We can't have any hierarchies. We don't make any choices. When in fact, of course, you are valuing things. You've just gotten confused now about how to think about it because you don't have a compass because you're not supposed to make any judgments at all. 
And so we had a whole group of people get lost in terms of being able to make and feel that they can say, this is better than that. I feel good when I say, this is better than that. And you have to sneak up on people, as you were saying. Show them this film of Carl Rogers and allow them to start talking normatively. And allow them to start making statements about, this might be better than that. Wait a minute. World-centric is better than ethnocentric. I'm allowed to think that. That's mm-hmm. a good value that I'm allowed to think. In thinking that, I don't have to give up any of my affections and my prizing for the particularities of one ethnicity or another. Right. Well, exactly. But world-centric is better than Nazis in that sense. And you can be ethnocentric, embracing your roots, but also not wanting to oppress any group because of its race or its color and so on. And so I think we did get the downside of having a wonderful non-judgmentalist in the positive sense about everybody should be given equal opportunity and equal access and so on, to being confused about how to make judgments at all. We lost touch a little bit with how to do that. And I think that's what's so interesting about the downsides of postmodernism. 20% of the population has a hard time making conscious, explicit judgments because they are tiptoeing between some very difficult issues. I remember feeling this in an interview I read in Enlightenment magazine between you and Andrew Cohn. Yes, yes. Um, and, I, and I can feel this creeping into our own conversation, which is, There's a certain way that anyone listening in could be forgiven for concluding, well, aren't these two guys just incredibly comfortable with themselves? And (laughs) it must be so nice for them, basically, to be looking out onto this world of confused people who uh, (laughs) haven't somehow figured out what they've figured out. And I agree that there's some small percentage that may be very culturally influential whose forms of relativism or an R for working through of the limits of self-authorship and so on. But I'm still not completely convinced that a lot of the forms of upheaval and, in some cases, liberation and increased protections for Mm -hmm. people that were excluded and many of the things that we would think were most positive about the the 60s and 70s, I'm still not sure which relativism they were largely riding on. For example, living in Boston, we had a whole period of forced busing to increase forms of integration for kids in schools, recognizing that a lot of kids were really getting the short end of a stick in terms of their own schooling. Leaving aside whether we think that was a good or bad strategy to try to achieve greater degrees of equity, the basic aspiration to recognize that every kid deserved the best public education we could provide for them, irrespective of their race, is something I think we'd agree is positive. But if you looked at the faces and the discourse of the most passionate forms of objection and concern about what was happening to the integrity of these distinct neighborhoods, like these very white Irish neighborhoods, for example, South Boston, let's say, and the more black neighborhoods of Roxbury or whatever, for me it all got personified in one brief exchange between a woman who became a political champion of the white Irish South Bostonians, her name was Louise Day Hicks. Mm And Arthur Garrity, he was a federal judge who took over the schools and basically enforced busing. Yep. And what Louise Dayhick said is, Arthur Garrity is an Irishman who doesn't want to be Irish. Yeah. And when you look at the battle joined that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I do, you know, I it's, do. It's all about coming out of these sacred self-definitions of oneself and yeah. one's tribe. Yeah. And the basic messages that are getting interpreted as somebody who is somehow violating yeah, yeah, the yeah. oaths of their own tribe and so yeah, on. Yeah. 
is about a different developmental passage. No, I agree entirely. No, I was trying to isolate one component of many that were involved. And let me just check and see what you think about it in terms of some numbers that some of the people had run. If you take Don Beck and Claire Graves' work, for example, yeah. their general claim is that the percentage of population at Green, or what Graves called relativistic or pluralistic, went from around 5% to around 15 to 20% within about one generation. It was a fairly large bump that they tended to see. And Paul Ray, the sociologist, tends to agree in very loose-ish terms. Now, don't you think that little bump could contribute to some of that? Because what you would get then is that people at a different stage, even though it's just a percentage of the population, would be contributing to some of this stuff. And if that stage happens to be rather defined by its sort of relativistic, pluralistic, like we were talking about, then that would be expected to enter the population in its own pedestrian way to some degree. Yeah, is that yeah, one I component? Think I think that's possible. Lots of other factors involved. But I think you're right that there can be situations where certain kinds of cultural moves and changes take place that were initiated with a certain kind of mindset, and then they are seen and they're interpreted and they're right. experienced by lots of other people in a wide variety of ways. Right. My first experience of this is as an adolescent coming of age in the 60s and being part of the anti-war movement yep. was coming to recognize that often in these demonstrations and political actions with hundreds of people where at one sense I was feeling, isn't this wonderful that we have this common group of like-minded people who are taking a stand yeah. against ah. our country's moves okay. into killing people in the jungles of Southeast Asia because we were moving together and moving against a common foe. I think but, I know where this is going. Yeah, Was once the, you yeah. really dug into what various people were actually believing, uh, oh, I you, know. you realize, oh my God, know. You know, it reminds me of an interview I remember reading with Richard Pryor, you know, the black comedian. Yeah, and yeah. He did a movie with Gene Wilder, oh, yeah. a lot of which was based in a prison. Oh, an hysterical movie. I yeah, that. and he said, we were in a real prison, he said. And, yeah. you know, for years I've been saying every black man is a political prisoner, you know, and it should be a prince living on a different continent, and this is the man keeping us down. He yeah, said, right. I spent two weeks actually with a lot of these folks and talking with them. And he said, thank God for penitentiary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember that dialogue. Oh, yes, he was hysterical on it. Uh, excuse my French, but he said, they'll fuck you in the ass just to see the look on your face. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's like the whole content structure thing, right? We can't take yeah. given behaviors as themselves being evident of a particular order of consciousness. You know, that very experience, that identical experience you're talking about, the war protest, because I was at some of those as well, and that was the budding experience of how non-unified that was even though yep. it was under unified language, that actually yep. led to me eventually writing a thing called the pre-trans fallacy, the pre-post fallacy. Because right. there were many, many studies on this done, that I know you're aware of, but one of them in particular went into the Berkeley protests, yep. and Kohlberg and his people did. Actually, yes. again, there are dozens of these done, but a typical yep. one showed yep. that of everybody's seen this saying, we protest the war, we're doing it for universal moral reasons and so on. Right. About 20% of the people there were post-conventional, right. and about 80% were pre-conventional. Exactly. And it's like, whoa, because pre and posts are both non-conventional in their own kooky ways. Right. They sounded similar. And why should we have expected that community of people to be any less diverse oh, yeah. in their mental sets than yeah. any other community? Yeah. This is what's so interesting. I want to talk to you about adult development as well. On the long haul, and I almost hate to use the analogy of the stock market, but you never know, and some people are just anti-capitalists in general. But there's an old saying, the stock market has its ups and downs, but on the whole, it just kind of keeps 
going up slowly. And right. if you look at human history on the long haul, it does seem to be a little bit like the stock market. And yes. the center of gravity of consciousness, it just keeps trudging on upward, doesn't it? Yeah. Actually, that was one of the things that Kohlberg was quite interested in before his death, was thinking about this on a much grander scale. And he resurrected some social scientists from the 30s. I think his name was Hobhouse, who was basically trying to marshal evidence for right. exactly that thesis. Right. Well, Plato called it Eros. There does seem to be an Eros running through the cosmos. That, to me, is just fascinating. Yeah, this would quickly get us into a more spiritual realm. Why are we growing and developing individually? What problem are we at a species level yeah. gradually and transgenerationally and evolutionarily being called to resolve? We're living in a race against our own destruction or our continued survival. Well, it's a little like the whole issue of the fact that every individual, at least in first world cultures, is living longer, just a longer number of years. A hundred years ago, people died at a point that we today call midlife. Yep. And when you ask, so why are we living longer? The glib answer is medical science. (laughs) The deeper question is, why are we developing? As a people, if you just step back from this, why are we developing the knowledge in order to live longer? And what is the purpose of this? Well, and that, again, opens up a whole can of things. That'd be another hour. Well, it is, and I want to do it. Let's talk about a little bit of it right now, though, and then let's sort of come back and do this, because you and I should be checking in more often. I agree. I completely agree. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. And one of the things, too, as you know, I did, it's actually a brief book in terms of content, but it's called Integral Psychology. And the reason I did it is I put a 100 charts in the back of that book. And these were developmental charts taken from all over the world. Of course, you're in it, and Claire Graves, and Maslow, and Piaget, etc. And all the way back to Plotinus and Aurobindo. And the striking thing when you look at these developmental charts, maps that different pioneers have come up with, is certainly there's a lot of differences. But on balance, it's the striking general similarity to these things. It really is just breathtaking. And it is an increase in perspective, egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric. Yeah, I think that's absolutely so. And it even links back to this notion of hierarchy. The hierarchy objection is often very linked to or closely followed by the cultural forms of relativity, that this must surely be a Western theory. Why should we give it any credence? And look how clearly Western this is, this whole notion of onward and upward. And and then I can't tell you, especially over the nearly 30 years I've been at Harvard, one of the interesting things is just how much more internationalized our student body is and just how wonderful it is to be sitting in one place and have opportunities through the people who come to us to connect with cultures all over the world. We have many, many more students who come not from the West at all. And to have them come up and say, it's very interesting to us, Professor Keegan, how you have this theory and this idea, because you're clearly such an American, and you're so Western, and yet the theory itself is just so fundamentally Eastern. Yeah, I don't know how to tell you this. You're a Neo-Confucian, sir. Yeah. I don't know why you're <laughs> ripping us off, you white imperialists, but it's a Vedanta notion and a Confucian notion and a Taoist notion, and it is. Right. You find them over there. Yeah. These spheres of increasing care and consciousness that really are universal in the best sense. One of the things that I wanted to definitely at least work in is adult development, and how hard is it? I was a little bit misquoted in What is Enlightenment because I had made a point in several books, as have you, that although transformation defined as a 
vertical change in levels or stages or orders of consciousness and complexity happens fairly quickly in infancy and young childhood. It's like we're really going through a lot of ground very quickly. And you can see three, four, five major transformations by the time yep. you're an adolescent. Yep. And then sometime in around the 20s, it doesn't stop. It just gets harder. People seem to kind of plateau out and kind of get rutted a little bit. And yep. there have been several empirical studies trying to take adults and say, okay, let's take somebody who's 30 years old. What can we do? Using any scale of development, Jane Lovinger's, Bob Keegan's, Claire Gray's, doesn't matter. Using that scale of development, can we get people to move up a stage or two? And the answer is it's damn hard. And so I was going to say it's impossible, and of course it's not impossible. And I thought one of the wonderful things you had done in how the way we talk can change the way we work. I thought the great thing about that book was the simplicity and the sneakiness in the best sense, of helping people transform by objectifying what they're at. But it is hard, isn't it? It's harder, isn't it? I agree it's hard, and I remember in that interview, when that particular point was brought up, I remember thinking about the notion that there's almost a geometric thing going on, that we can see this transformation of a relatively simple human organism over the first nine months of life even, I mean, moving into any recognition of a subject-object distinction. And then it takes a little longer, but yeah, relatively speaking, might only be like a year and a half or whatever till the next one. And then the next one might take more like three years or something. You start to get a picture that as the system that one is gradually outgrowing becomes more and more complex, we should expect an extremely nonlinear curve here that it's going to take longer and longer. And this goes back to the issue of what does it mean that people tend to live an additional generation? What does that give people time to generate, having an additional generation to live? So I think that it's a combined hopefulness and a recognition that, yes, these kinds of developments are quite gradual and slow. Well, here's a counterbalance to that, because the other side of that, and let's just use for extreme emphasis Jane Lovinger, eight levels, or Claire Graves, the spiral dynamics, they're roughly the same eight levels. 50,000 years ago, to be an adult, you had to go from stage one to stage two. That was it. If you got up to purple, it's 100,000, 200,000 years ago, that's it. That's about as far as humanity has gone. You're a fully adult, mature person. One major transformation way to go. Of course, you could screw it up. and <laughs> There would be pathology. Mm-hmm. Human beings are always good at that. Right. But all you had is one step. Then you come into the beginning of farming, maybe yeah. 15,000. Now you've got to get up to red. Yeah. Once you have some kind of a tribe, some kind of a group where you have to be in some way acculturated into it. Right. You've got to get to three. You've got to get to three. And that will be fine, right? That's fine. fine. Then at some point you get to an agrarian structure. You've got to get up to four. And then you come into the Western Enlightenment with at least world-centric, post-conventional legal codes. That's good old level five, at least. You've got to educate at least through high school to have a liberal democracy. We have in the 60s, supposedly, according to Claire Graves and some others, a center of gravity that got all the way up to about level six. So to be an adult human being, using this eight-level thing, people have to go through not just one, but four or five or six major transformations. And many of them do it by the time they're in their 20s or 30s. So in a certain sense, being an adult means that we have sometimes five or six major stages to go through, as opposed to a million years ago when we only had one or two, possibly. So not only are there more stages we have to grow through, it seems that there are more ways we can get sick, because every time there's a stage, there's something that can go wrong. We have six ways of getting sick. 
when the original tribes had one way of getting sick. And so, of course, we can be some pretty screwed up people. But there's also that compression in a certain sense that those have to get stacked up on top of each other. And then by the time we get into early adulthood, then there is that plateau we're talking about. And whether people come in at level four, level five, level six, by the time they're in their 20s, they tend to slow down a little bit. But I find that the whole notion, it's almost like a stack of orders of consciousness that we're required to go through as evolution itself keeps going on. Yep, I agree that as we evolve more and more complex environments in which we live, it sort of calls out for greater degrees of complexity. And in a certain way, that whole dimension to our conversation is a bit of a cure to what might otherwise seem like a too decontextualized consideration of the solo human evolving on his or her own. In a sense, what you're naming is the way in which the evolution of culture creates a more and more adequate and stimulating holding environment that is actually to some degree to be credited for these extraordinary developments of, say, the last several hundred years in comparison to the prior hundred thousand years. That's a magnificent picture of an unself-conscious school or educational process that culture is building there. That's that image that we were talking about, four quadrants with the spheres going through. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And culture acts as a kind of, we have a center of gravity somewhere on the spiral dynamics thing, orangish, most Western democracies, blue to orange to green. Mm-hmm. And so the center of gravity is like a magnet. It helps pull you up to that average. Yep. But if you try to go beyond it, it can pull you down. In other words, you're on your own a little bit the more you go in that direction. And usually that's why so many of the contemplative societies have emphasized the Sangha. In other words, get a group of like-minded people and practice if you're going to try to go any farther than culture is gone because you're not going to get any help from culture anymore. Yeah. Well, that was, <laughs> as you know, the basic theme of the book In Over Our Heads, that in a way we had evolved a culture that really was making these continuous fourth-order self-authoring kinds of demands. Exactly. And yet our center of gravity even as an adult population, was somewhat less complicated than that. Very much, yeah. And that can be both a picture of a good school. I mean, in and of itself, Uh there's no problem with having the culture be a little bit more complex if the kinds of supports that would be necessary to master that culture are provided. Well, starting with an adult learning and professional development chair, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and ending there, too. And ending right there, too. <laughs> it is a delight, as always, to talk with you, my friend. I just really, really appreciate you so much. You know, I've told this many, many times to people, and it probably bears the daylight out of you, but there's original Integral Institute meetings that we had up at the Boulder House, yeah. some 400 people through there. Only one person that I ever see this happen to, and that's on occasion, you would make an impassioned point. At five or ten minutes, we were all taking turns talking, and people would applaud when you got done. <laughs> and twice, I saw them stand and applaud. And I, I just want you to know, of all the people well, that came through that house. This, this goes back to the context <laughs> issue. You know, I, I'm sure I couldn't have done that without feeling remarkably well-held and supported by what you were doing there. Well, I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. We are going to continue that journey, my friend. Okay, I look forward to it. (laughs) Wonderful talking with you, and I look forward to seeing you and talking with you again before too long. Me too. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, 
and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them. Which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world. 